Welcome to the GW Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, leadership, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the Foggy Bottom Campus in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the Business of Sports program at GW. My producer is Henry Levy. My guest is Bernadette McGlade, Commissioner of the Atlantic 10 Conference, and of course, GW is a member of the A10. Bernadette has been the top administrator for the conference since 2008. She's highly respected and one of the handful of women leading college conferences today. On a recent visit to campus, Bernadette and I spoke about her start in college athletics as a very young Division I head basketball coach, how a conference commissioner's performance is judged, And we also spoke about an important and troubling topic, the decline in the percentage of women coaching women's college teams. Bernadette McGlade, welcome to the podcast and welcome to GW. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here and um, happy that we uh, get a chance to see each other. It's been a, uh, a quick year, I would say. Well, and I think a good year for the A-10, and we will talk about that a little bit later. Let's talk about the early stages of your career in athletics. Your first coaching job, head coaching job, I believe, was at Georgia Tech. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's unbelievable when I think about it now um, because I have obviously grown nieces and nephews, and I look at them, and, you know, they're 23 years old, and... I was 23 years old when I got hired for a head ACC Division I women's basketball job. I just finished my master's at University of North Carolina. And it was one of those opportunities that, you know, you're crazy if you take the job, but you're crazy if you don't take the job. So, of course, I took the job, um, <clears throat> went to Atlanta, and it was – I had two players on my team that were actually older than me um, at that point in time. and. Um, one of the things that is that reminds me most of how young I was was within about the first month I had to go out and take my first recruiting trip and I was excited so I jumped on a plane and flew to New York to go recruit some players up there and I went to the rental car to pick up my rental car and I was told I couldn't rent the car and I was completely shocked because I had no idea that you had to be 25 years old before you could rent a car. And there I was in New York, Um, I was in LaGuardia Airport by myself as a head coach and I couldn't rent the rental car to be able to go to see the players I wanted to see. So lots of fun stories, but um, Homer Rice was a a great athletic director, great administrator in this business and I was very fortunate uh, to have had that opportunity because it set the course really for my entire career. Were there advantages to being so young as a head coach? Did that play in your favor in, in ways that you can explain? I think it did. I think it played in my, in my favor because just like when I didn't realize that I couldn't rent a car, you know, when you're young and you're ambitious and you're driven, uh, you essentially have no fear. And I would never thought about the, um, I guess, the position that I was in. Uh, to me, taking the job, it, it seemed like the next step. I finished my master's. I had um, helped coach as a graduate assistant at UNC, and it, it just seemed like the next step. Looking back on it, I do realize how unusual it was. Um, I think there was another unique thing that, that was a byproduct of taking that job. 
Georgia Tech was a predominantly male-dominated school. Only 19% of the undergraduate enrollment were females. Uh, very few females at Georgia Tech at the time. Homer Rice was known for his football. He had coached in a professional in the NFL. He had been athletic director. He was driven by the sport of football. And the one advantage of being hired there as they were building their women's athletics program is I had a boss that only knew how to do things in the manner and model for football. So a lot of doors were open. I didn't have to fight a lot of battles for the way we traveled. Of course, we had beautiful first-class coach buses to take us, and we flew to games um, because I had a boss that that's the way he did it for all of the men's programs at George Tech. So it really was an advantage at that point in time, you know, in the early 80s. How has women's basketball at the D1 level changed over the 35 years since you were coaching? Well, the players, no question about it. They're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger. Um, you know, I came right out of essentially playing at UNC um, when I started coaching. And, you know, I was playing the center position. And I had players on my teams at Georgia Tech that were, you know, six foot, six foot one, six foot two, playing, you know, center and post positions. Now that's, that's the height and the size of the point guard for most of the Division I programs. So, you know, all the female athletes that have had the benefit to come through with the advantages of Title IX and to have proper coaching, proper training, proper nutrition, um, you know, these females today are, are really trained to such an elite level as far as their athletic ability is concerned. And then I think the finances behind it, you know, I mean, your premier Division I women's basketball programs you know, we were thrilled to have the big charter bus to take us to a game. And now, you know, the teams in the Atlantic 10, they're chartering planes. They're not chartering buses. They charter a plane because they want to get home immediately the night after their game so they don't miss the next day class. So there have been significant changes. But I would say the money behind the opportunities for scholarships in Division One women's basketball, uh, the national schedules of traveling, traveling abroad, um, the actual skill level and the coaching and the um, all the services that the student athletes get now in terms of nutritional training and you know their physical training and you know sleep analysis and all of those things that never existed when I was coaching in the early 80s. We appreciate having you on campus to speak to our students and your name card is going to say Bernadette McGlade, Commissioner mm -hmm. of the Atlantic 10 conference, one of the, the few, relatively few, women commissioners of Division I conferences. Um, we understand, I think, how basketball coaches and athletic directors assess the success of a season or a year. How does a commissioner of a conference, what are the metrics that you look at? That's a great question. Um, and from a commissioner's standpoint, I guess the metrics are somewhat the same, but they're larger. Obviously, we host a lot of championships. We have 6,000 student athletes in the Atlantic 10, and we do um, 18 different championships in different sports. So obviously, we don't want just one championship. Like an athletic director wants their, their single teams to do well. We want to be able to host like premier championships at great venues, great locations, from the start of our first championship, which is cross country, 
to our final championship, which is baseball that, that starts really Memorial Day weekend in May. Um, and then in between, we have, you know, a total all of 18 championships. I would say also in terms of to see multiple successes, you know, we not only want to crown our best teams as our conference champion, but we want them to go on to postseason play, whether it's NCAA opportunities, multiple teams in the men's and women's championship, to send multiple runners to the NCAA track championship. Um, this year we were fortunate we sent three men's soccer teams to the NCAA. And um, for the Atlantic 10, that's, that's a really high watermark. And that's something that we will celebrate when we do our year-end banquets and award ceremonies, et cetera. And then also our overall academic standing. Um, we're ranked three in the nation out of all 32 Division I conferences have to give a nod. Certainly the Ivies always sort of grab that number one okay, slot. They're number, who's number two? Uh, well, the Patriot floats in and out of that. But for the, for the successes that the Atlantic 10 has in the sport of men's basketball, women's basketball, et cetera, and then to be the third ranked um, conference academically in academic progress and graduation success rate, that's, that is a really significant achievement. And that's part of our strategic plan. So my president's council, which is the board I report to, they not only want us to win championships and get into the NCAA, but they want to be in the top five academically for all of the Division I conferences in the country. With respect to opportunities for women in collegiate athletics, in administrative roles and coaching roles, um, so you've been on both sides of the fence. Let's talk about coaching for a moment. After the enactment of, of Title IX in 72, well, at that point, the percentage of women coaching women's teams was, was quite high, 90%. Yep. The percentage of women coaching women's teams today is under 40%. So n not questioning the importance of Title IX or the benefits, but, but this is, I think, an unintended consequence. What... Can you diagnose this for us? What, why are women um, less present in college coaching than, than they were um, in the 70s? Um, again, another excellent question. And, you know, this is a real issue right now as far as professional opportunities and not only just the fact that women's um, positions in coaching have decreased so much, but it's also that our young female athletes aren't then in turn seeing female role models as their head coach. And I attribute it to a couple of things. As you know, it's never one isolated reason, but certainly to what Title IX, you know, the advantages it brought, which is what I mentioned, is, you know, increased financial backing. So all of a sudden the salaries go up, the opportunities go up. And so competing for those jobs um, became very appealing to men that were coaching men's sports. Um, I think the second thing is in terms of grassroots coaching opportunities, what we're seeing right now is a lot of the youth programs, youth development grass, grassroots programs, they're coached by predominantly the dads, the dads in the neighborhood. Mom is either, if it's both two working families, mom is either working and then taking care of the household. And, you know, I guess luckily dad gets to work and then come home on Saturday morning and he's going to coach maybe even their own kids, soccer team or basketball team or whatever. So young female athletes that have a lot of opportunities through Title IX, they're playing um, community sports, whether it's soccer or basketball or running track, and they're seeing as their role models 
males. And what we're seeing at the collegiate level too is when there's a job opening, oftentimes the female athletes themselves who have only been coached by males will say when they're asked for input on the opening, they will actually say, you know, well, we really want a male coach. And so I think we have to reverse a couple trends. We have to get more women involved in grassroots coaching so that they are seen in positions of leadership coaching sports. And then I think we have to really address the hiring practices as well. Um, and again, for working mothers and um, females, some, there are some concessions that need to be made that are good for the entire organization. And I think that women are really struggling with the balance of can they have it all? And I'm kind of of the school of thought that, yes, you can have it all, but it might be at different points in times. Um, and so, again, a very complex situation right now, but a situation where we do have to purposefully address hiring more qualified women uh, that are leading our female sports programs. So in a moment, you're going to be speaking to an audience that will be 40 to 50 percent women, all of whom are here because they have an interest in being involved in the sports industry, many of them at the college level. What advice and encouragement can you give them in light of what we've just discussed mm -hmm. about um, kind of a static nature of opportunities for women? What, what sort of encouragement can you give women who want to be in this field? I would say, first off, be confident and when there are job openings or positions that interest them, um, women have to compete. I see it with the jobs that I hire. Um, the, the young men, the young males and that are in the early part of their profession or middle part of their profession, um, they compete. They pull out all the stops. They call references in and, and I think women have to do that. And there's nothing wrong with competing. There's nothing wrong with being very forthright in your um, motivation to want to secure a certain position. Um, and then as you have positions, I think doing your, your job well is really important. And also being willing to um, expand your area of expertise. If there's opportunity, that's one thing that I was able to do at Georgia Tech that I think really benefited me. Um, Dr. Homer Rice gave me a lot of opportunities to step out of the role of just being the head women's basketball coach and begin to oversee some of the other coaches administratively. And then to be able to see some of our other areas, our academic center, our tennis center, and being able to get experience in finance, in um, supervising other staff is really critically important to be able to advance in intercollegiate athletics. and. Unless you are specifically coaching, you can't allow yourself to get professionally too pigeonholed just in one area of expertise. Bernadette, it's been great having you on the podcast. Very thoughtful answers, and I think um, we're fortunate to have you on campus. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.